What do you know about Sherlock Holmes, Caitlin? That Henry Cavill plays him. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, oh, he does in, in that movie Enola with... Holmes or Okay, whatever. okay. That's what I know. Okay. I and haven't actually watched that movie. all the basic stuff. Like, I never read any of the books or anything. Okay. So you know the... He was a detective. Mm-hmm. He smoked the pipe. He... Yep. I thought he was a real person probably up until, like maybe not even Today. three years ago <laughs> well apparently so did many other people I throughout mean, history because there was such an extensive canon of literature on him and his cases and his personality that many people have believed that for a very long time and he was based on a real person according to the author that created mm. him so that's pretty interesting to like read about if you ever want to to kind of get into it. But yeah, he is loosely based on a real person that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle would write letters to. And at one point in one of those letters, he actually um, said something like, let's be real, like you are Holmes, like you mm-hmm. are the real Holmes. Like everybody knows I'm basically writing you as this character. Right. So. He wasn't real, but he kind of was. Like, I'm sure, I don't know. There's, I, yeah. And it's kind of cool when somebody like that is turned into a fictional character and you don't quite know what is fact and what is fiction. Especially in that, what time period would that have been? Um, This was in between 1887 through 1927 was actually when all of the novels and the short stories were being released in the paper Uh, so for like 30 something years like that had to be real entertainment back then yes and then so before i get too far ahead of myself um and we talk about all of the other things with this case like we already said the sherlock holmes phenomenon began way back in 1887 in a novel written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle titled A Study in Scarlet. And the novel itself actually wasn't like a breakout hit, Mm -hmm. but it was popular enough that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle got a spot in like a local serial, serial as in S-E-R-E. I-A-L paper where they would just release short... (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Okay. Not like a cereal box story, (laughs) but he would regularly release these tales, these short stories, and eventually four full-length novels over a 36-year time span from 1891 until 1927. And there were 56 total short stories and four novels. So that's a long run for a character prior to there being like short of jesus yes (laughs) short of the marvel franchise where there's like 14 (laughs) universes about every character and like anybody who's seen enola holmes or the robert downey jr movies and jude law uh, with uh watson watson i presume overshadowed downy yes yes uh but that's where i really got my like holmes intro in was those movies 
and I've read some of the short stories, but nothing that like I really remember as being like, oh my god, that changed my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is something that, and we're talking about it because it very much relates to the story today, and we want you guys to kind of have an understanding of the cultural impact that Sherlock Holmes had just on the world of literature, movies, film, theater. And according to, thank you, Wikipedia, let's see here. Sorry, I lost my spot. Okay, so while he was not the first fictional detective, Sherlock Holmes was by far the best known. And by the 1990s, there were 25,000 stage adaptations, films, and TV productions that featured him. That's like, whoa. And apparently the Guinness Book of World Records listed him as the most portrayed human literary character in film and television history. Interesting. Isn't that crazy? And then this kind of goes back to what you were saying about thinking he was real. Holmes's popularity and fame were so big that so many people believed he was not actually a fictional character but was real that there were all of these like literary and fan societies that were founded on this pretense so like that people believe and there's like all these schools of thought that like no he really was a real real person Mm -hmm. and like all of his things that he did were real and the stuff he actually in some of his stories is like involved in spiritual hoodoo and like dr moriarty does dark magic stuff and so there's that element of like hard science and hard fact Mm -hmm. but also the unexplainable that also kept people very like intrigued and that was a big thing in victorian england too Mm -hmm. was like spooky spiritual stuff so Sir Arthur Conan Doyle really, like, tapped into all of these elements that people were super fascinated by and just ran with it for decades. Cause, yeah, he got lucky. Uh, he really, really did. I mean, not lucky because he put in hard work and <laughs> he dedicated his time to it, but... Yes, yes. And we kind of, like, get this hint in the movies with um robert downey jr but sherlock holmes he's very eccentric and Mm -hmm. he's kind of like a dick in some ways and he's very obsessive over things he's very weird people don't really get him or they're like annoyed by him but watson is always kind of that like um balancing yes and is annoyed by him but also knows how brilliant he is and is just like along for the ride Mm -hmm. and is there to like rein things back in and be his normal person voice when he's doing crazy shit Mm -hmm. and Watson's like oh that's just (laughs) that's just Sherlock but they always end up solving it in the end so with that history that you didn't ask for (laughs) of Sherlock Holmes but I found it really interesting once I started (laughs) reading about it Um, We have chosen at random another blind read case uh, to give you guys today. And Caitlin is going to take it away from here. 
So, we're going to take you through an in-depth true crime article that neither of us know anything about. Because, again, that's what we do with these blind reads. <laughs> yep. And give you our brilliant and hilarious commentary throughout. <laughs> You're welcome. Mm-hmm. And we hope you guys are experiencing it for the first time like we are as well. This story is called The Strange Death of a Sherlock Holmes Fanatic by David Gran. Lights out, campers. Oh, man, the mountains call my number Richard Lancelin Green, the world's foremost expert on Sherlock Holmes, believed that he had finally solved the case of the missing papers. I would like somebody to solve that case in my life, because I never know where anything is. Ask your five-year-old, he probably knows. Mm, that's probably true. He probably took whatever it was. Yeah, true. Over the past two decades, he had been looking for a trove of letters, diary entries, and manuscripts written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Holmes. The archive was estimated to be worth nearly $4 million and was said by some to carry a deadly curse like the one in the most famous Holmes story, The Hound of the Baskervilles. The papers had disappeared after Conan Doyle died in 1930, and without them, no one had been able to write a definitive biography, a task that Green was determined to complete. Many scholars feared that the archive had been discarded or destroyed. As the London Times noted earlier this year, its whereabouts had become a mystery as tantalizing as any to unfold at 221B Baker Street the fictional den of Holmes and his fellow sleuth, Dr. Watson. Not long after Green launched his investigation, he discovered that one of Conan Doyle's five children, Adrian, had, with other heirs' agreement, stashed the papers in a locked room of a chateau that he owned in Switzerland. Oh my god, a chateau Maybe that's where your papers are, Jen. Mm, Have you tried looking? Yes, my family's chateau in Switzerland. (laughs) Green then learned that Adrian had spirited some of the papers out of the chateau without his siblings' knowledge, hoping to sell them to collectors. In the midst of the scheme, he died of a heart attack, giving rise to the legend of the curse. Oh, shit. Oh, a curse. Oh, we just talked about curses in the last episode. After Adrian's death, the papers apparently vanished. And whenever Green tried to probe further, he found himself caught in an impenetrable web of heirs, including a self-styled Russian princess, who seemed to have deceived and double-crossed each other in their efforts to control the archive. Dun-dun-dun. Mm. Ah, this sounds like a promising... Sounds like clue. It does. I was going to say it also sounds like, if anybody watched Succession on HBO Max, oh. this sounds like another type of that story. Where a bunch of rich assholes just try to out-backstab each other for power and money. But, I mean, if a chateau in Switzerland was on the line, I'd be right in the middle of it. I'd be in it. (laughs) No one would be safe. For years, Green continued to sort through evidence and interview relatives until one day the muddled trail led to London and the doorsteps of Jean Conan Doyle, the youngest of the Arthur's children. Tall and elegant with silver hair, She was an imposing woman in her late 60s, 
quote, something very strong and forceful seems to be at the back of the wee body, unquote. Her father had written of Jean when she was five. Her will is tremendous. Mm. Mm. Whereas her brother Adrian had been kicked out of the British Navy for insubordination and her elder brother Dennis was a playboy who had sat out the Second World War in America. She had become an officer in the Royal Air Force and was honored in 1963 as a dame commander of the Order of the British Empire. Wow. So these are some... His children are pretty cool sounding, actually. The playboy? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, maybe cool to, like, have a good time with. I mean, not, hey, I'm yeah. not complaining. I'm not, <laughs> not arguing. You know he'd have been throwing that money around. Mm. Oh, wait, it's no. not what I thought you were going to say, but... Oh, throwing something else around, too. Also, I just realized it said he sat out of yeah, the Second World out. War, so that's he not so cool. He was just a playboy. Yeah, maybe the only really cool person is... Uh, What's-her-face? Jean. Jean. Yeah. A dame commander of the Order of the British Empire. That's pretty cool. She invited Green into her flat, where a portrait of her father with his walrus mustache hung near the fireplace. Green had almost as great an interest in her father as she did, and she began sharing her memories as well as family photographs. She asked him to return, and one day, Green later told friends, she showed him some boxes that had been stored in a London solicitor's office. Peering inside them, he said, he had glimpsed part of the archive. Dame Jean informed him that, because of an ongoing family dispute, she couldn't yet allow him to read the papers, but she said that she intended to bequeath nearly all of them to the British Library so that scholars could finally examine them. After she died in 1997, Green eagerly awaited their transfer, but nothing happened. Then, last March, Green opened the London Sunday Times and was shocked to read that the lost archive had turned up at Christie's auction house and was to be sold in May for millions of dollars, by three of Conan Doyle's distant relatives. Instead of going to the British Library, the contents would be scattered among private collectors around the world, who might keep them inaccessible to scholars. Green was sure that a mistake had been made, and hurried to Christie's to inspect the materials. Upon his return, he told friends that he was certain that many of the papers were the same as those he had uncovered. What's more, he alleged, they had been stolen, and he had proof. Over the next few days, he approached members of the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, one of hundreds of fan clubs devoted to the detective. Green had once been a chairman. Hmm. He alerted other so-called Sherlockians, including various American members of the Baker Street Irregulars, an invitation-only group that was founded in 1934 and named after the street urchins Holmes regularly employed to ferret out information. <laughs> Green? Oh. That, sorry, that is just mind-blowing to me that yet again, so it says the Sherlock Holmes Society of London Green was once chairman of, mm -hmm. but there were hundreds of fan clubs just devoted clubs. to him. Yeah. That's crazy. That is so nuts. But, I mean, back then... When you have good entertainment yeah. and nothing else. I was like, they had fuck all else to do. 
I mean, you get a disease. There are far worse things you could be doing, I guess. But getting man, a disease, having a kid, oh, reading the paper. Yeah. That's what they were doing. Literally. Green also contacted the more orthodox scholars of Conan Doyle, or the Doyleans, about the sale. <laughs> These names. Doyleans. Unlike Green, who moved between the two camps, many Doyleans <laughs> distanced <laughs> themselves from the Sherlockians. Hmm. Oh my gosh, I feel like we're talking D&D. D- right. Who often treated Holmes as if he were a real detective and refused to mention Conan Doyle by name. Wow. So now he's like morphed into something that lives outside of the person mm-hmm. that created him. But hasn't that kind of happened with the Harry Potter fandom? Oh. Like people have 100% taken ownership of that world and ran with it. Like J.K. Rowling will say shit and people will be like, no, no that is actually, not what this person would have done. No, no, that is not who they are. You have it wrong. And I'm like, I'm sorry. She created them, but okay. (laughs) Like, I'm not saying I like or agree with everything she has to say, because I know she said some pretty problematic stuff, so I've heard, but like, damn. She kind of invented him. (laughs) She's kind of right. Uh, I don't know. Green shared with these scholars that he knew about the archive's provenance, revealing that he considered the most damning piece of evidence a copy of Dame Jean's will, which stated, quote, I give to the British Library all my late father's original papers, personal manuscripts, diaries, engagement books, and writings, unquote. Determined to block the auction, the makeshift group of amateur sleuths presented the case to the members of Parliament. Dang. Whoa. Toward the end of the month, as the group's campaign intensified and its objections appeared in the press, Green hinted to his sister, Priscilla West, that someone was threatening him. Later, he sent her a cryptic note containing three phone numbers and the message, Please help. Please keep these numbers safe. He also called a reporter from the London Times, warning that something might happen to him. Oh. Ah. That's creepy. On the night of Friday, March 26th, he had dinner with a longtime friend, Lawrence Keene, who later said that Green had confided in him that, quote, an American was trying to bring him down. After the two men left the restaurant, Green told Keene that they were being followed and pointed to a car behind them. The same evening, Priscilla West phoned her brother and got his answering machine. She called repeatedly the next morning, but he still didn't pick up. Alarmed, she went to his house and knocked on the door. There was no response. After several more attempts, she called the police, who came and broke open the entrance. Downstairs, the police found the body of Green lying on his bed, surrounded by Sherlock Holmes' books and posters, with a cord wrapped around his neck. He had been garroted. Hmm. Yikes. Quote, I will lay out the whole case for you, John Gibson, one of Green's closest friends, told me when I phoned him shortly after learning of Green's death. Gibson had written several books with Green, including My Evening with Sherlock Holmes, a 1981 collection of parodies and pastiches of the detective's stories. With a slight stammer, Gibson said of his, death's, of his friend's death, it's a completely and utter misery. Oh my gosh. Gibson said of his friend's death, It's a complete and utter mystery. Hmm. Not long after, I traveled to Great Bookham, a village 30 miles south of London where Gibson lives. 
He was waiting for me when I stepped off the train. He was tall and rail thin, and everything about him, narrow sh shoulders, long face, unruly gray hair, seemed to slouch forward, as if he were supported by an invisible cane. Quote, I have a file for you, he said, as he drove off in his car. As you'll see, there are plenty of clues and not a lot of answers. He sped through town, past a 12th century stone church and a row of cottages, until he stopped at a red brick house surrounded by hedges. You don't mind dogs, I hope, he said. I've two cocker spaniels. I only wanted one, but the person I got them from said they were inseparable, and so I took them both, and they've been fighting ever since. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Good to know. When he opened the front door, both spaniels leapt on us, then at each other. They trailed us into the living room, which was filled with piles of antique books, some reaching to the ceiling. Among the stacks was a near-complete set of The Strand magazine, in which the home stories were serialized at the turn of the 20th century. A single issue, which used to sell for half a shilling, is now worth as much as $500. Altogether, there must be about 60,000 books, Gibson said. We sat on a couch, and he opened his case file, carefully spreading the pages around him. All right, dogs, don't disturb us, he said. <laughs> he looked up at me. Now I'll tell you the whole story. Gibson said that he had attended the coroner's inquest and taken careful notes, and as he spoke, he picked up a magnifying glass beside him and peered through it at several crumbled pieces of paper. I write everything on scraps, he said. The police, he said, had found only a few unusual things at the scene. There was the cord around Green's neck, a black shoelace. Interesting. Ugh. There was a wooden spoon near his hand and several stuffed animals on his bed. Um, my mind goes to some really weird kink places yeah. immediately. Like, <laughs> that is weird. Not shaming. Also, again, not shaming because I have stuffed animals from childhood. Oh. Like, and I, I sleep with my stuffed Eeyore every night. Yeah, I still have, you know, I some leg support though <laughs> for when I lay on my side. <laughs> but there's just something a little, I don't know, when you hear like stuffed animals on a grown man's bed, it's just a little like weird. I don't know. Maybe that's too hey, shamey. Maybe they were put there. Yeah, we that's true. Know. That's true. And there was a partially empty bottle of gin. Mm, that makes more sense. That does make sense. <laughs> the police found no sign of forced entry. That's what we're like, eh. Stuffed yeah. animals, no. Drinking, yeah. you're good. Yep. <laughs> uh, the police found no sign of forced entry and assumed that Green had committed suicide. Yet, there was no note. And Sir Colin Barry, all these sirs. Yeah. The president of the British Academy of Forensic Sciences testified to the coroner that, in his 30-year career, he had seen only one suicide by garroting. That would be a brutal way to go. Ugh, because you would... slow. Yes, and it's my understanding that when you garrot... Garrot. You... So that would be like he would have had the shoelace around his neck and then the wooden spoon he would have like twist. twisted it oh. so to do that to yourself and then you're like your survival instinct would yeah. definitely kick in that that's very bizarre Ugh. one gibson repeated self 
self-garroting is extremely difficult to do, he explained. People who attempt it typically pass out before they are asphyxiated. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. Like, it just makes sense. Plus, that would... I feel like that would hurt. Like, it would feel like it was cutting you a shoelace. That's... It's a no for me. Yeah. Something's not adding up there. Gibson reached in his file and handed me a sheet of paper with numbers on it. Take a look, he said. My phone records. The record showed that he and Green had spoken repeatedly during the week before his death. If the police had bothered to obtain Green's records, Gibson went on, they would no doubt show that Green had called him only hours before he died. I was probably the last person to speak to him, he said. The police, however, had never questioned him. During one of their last conversations about the auction, Gibson recalled Green had said he was afraid of something. You've got nothing to worry about, Gibson told him. No, I'm worried, Green said. What? You fear for your life? I do. Gibson said that, at the time, he didn't take the threat seriously, but advised Green not to answer his door unless he was sure who it was. Gibson glanced at his notes. There was something else, he said, something critical. On the eve of his death, he reminded me, Green had spoken to his friend, Keene, about an American who was trying to ruin him. The following day, Gibson said, he had called Green's house and heard a strange greeting on the answering machine. Instead of getting Richard's voice in the sort of Oxford accent, which had been on the machine for a decade, Gibson recalled, I got an American voice that said, sorry, not available. I said, what the hell is going on? I thought I must have dialed the wrong number. So I dialed really slowly again. I got the American voice. I said, Christ almighty. Hmm. That is weird. Why would you answer the phone? Yeah. Dumb American. (laughs) (laughs) That's so weird. Gibson said that Green's sister had heard the same recorded greeting, which is one reason that she had rushed to his house. Hmm. Reaching into his file, Gibson handed me several more documents. Make sure you keep them in chronological order, he said. There was a copy of Jean Conan Doyle's will, several newspaper clippings on the auction, an obituary, and Christie's catalog. Oh, okay. It took me a minute to realize, but when they say Christie's, they're talking about that really famous auction house. Oh, okay. okay. That was where all of the, like... Papers were. Yeah, or where they were supposedly supposed to be auctioned at. And then it was like, actually, no, we're not doing that Hmm. abruptly. But I think Christie's Auction House is, like, where all of that type of really famous stuff historically get au- gets okay. auctioned out. So that would actually be really cool to just, like, sit in the back and see the people that are, like, invited to those auctions. Like, selling Jesus' tombstone to get, <laughs> like, a rare Pokemon card? I don't know. Jesus' toenail clippings, oh like, that kind of weird, like, relics like, in history. I, I feel and... like it'd be weird stuff, like, yeah. weird, weird stuff. Ooh. That was pretty much all he had. The police, Gibson said, had not conducted any forensic tests or looked for fingerprints, and the coroner, who had once attended a meeting of the Sherlock Holmes Society to conduct a mock inquest of the murder, 
from a Conan Doyle story in which a corpse is discovered in a locked room, found himself stimmied. Stymied. Stymied. What does that mean? It's a weird way of saying like flummoxed or like perplexed okay like like, confused you gotta say different word than that word (laughs) i don't know words like stymied is like what the fuck like i'm stymied yeah okay Mm -hmm. gibson said that the coroner had noted that there was not enough evidence to ascertain what had happened and as a result the official verdict regarding whether green had killed himself or been murdered was left open within hours of green's death Sherlockian seized upon the mystery as if it were another case in the canon. Oh, you know, they were getting all they were on like, that. Yes. <laughs> he still lives. Yes. Okay. <laughs> like, we rise. Yeah. <laughs> like, the Facebook group is blowing up. <laughs> yeah. The group chat that has been silent. It's making out of the group chat. They're going to make it out. Yes. In a web chat room, one per- oh there we go. Oh. One person who called himself Inspector of <laughs> Hey. It's there a serious fandoms, job. There are fandoms for everything. It's hard work. Somebody's gotta do it, Jen. Mm, that's kind of a cute pet name though, Inspector. Inspector. Inspector Gadget. Inspector, yes, wrote As for self garroting It is like trying to choke oneself to death by your own hands. Others invoke the air quotes curse as if only the supernatural could explain it. Gibson handed me an article from a British tabloid that was headlined, quote, Curse of Conan Doyle strikes Holmes expert. So what do you think? Gibson asked. I'm not sure, I said. Later, we went through the evidence again. I asked Gibson if he knew whose phone numbers were on the note that Green had sent to his sister. Gibson shook his head. It hadn't come up at the inquest, he said. What about the American voice on the answering machine, I asked. Do we know who that is? Unfortunately, not a clue. To me, that's the strangest and most telling piece of evidence. Did Richard put that on his machine? What was he trying to tell us? Did the murderer put it on there? And if so, why would he do that? I asked if Green had ever displayed any irrational behavior. No, never, he said. He was the most level-headed man I ever met. He noted that Priscilla West had testified at the inquest that her brother had no history of depression. Indeed, Green's physician wrote to the court to say that he had not treated Green for any illness for a decade. One last question, I said. Was anything taken out of the apartment? Not that we know of. Richard had a valuable collection of Sherlock Holmes and Conan Doyle books, and nothing appears to be missing. As Gibson drove me back to the train station, he said, Please, you must stay on this case. The police seem to have let poor Richard down. Then he advised, as Sherlock Holmes says, When you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. Hmm. Some facts about Richard Green are easy to discern. Those which illuminate the circumstances of his life rather than the circumstances of his death. He was born on July 10, 1953. He was the youngest of three children. His father, Roger Lancelin Green. These are some long names. Yeah, they are. Fancy names. God, fancy British names. 
a best-selling children's author who popularized the homework myths. I don't think I've ever heard that. Hmm. Yeah, and the I legend can't say. of King. Oh, the legend of King Arthur. Oh, okay. okay, okay. And who was a close friend of C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien? Holy shit! Interesting. Okay, Holy cow. that's cool. And Richard was raised near Liverpool. On land that had been given to his ancestors in 1093. What? That doesn't make sense to me. God. That time doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. And where his family had resided ever since. (laughs) There's the bloodline and then there's the bloodline. Like, (laughs) I think I got a penny to my name. Wow. That's what's waiting for me. Yikes. Dang. I do not even know what my great, great grandparents names were like like i feel good for knowing my great grandparents names but 1093 yeah. great great yeah no dang nathaniel hawthorne who was the american consul in liverpool in the 1850s visited the house one summer and he later described it in his english notebooks these people know everybody good oh. lord like, we read Nathaniel Hawthorne books in, that's like, what, um, The Scarlet Letter, that's oh. a, the, a Nathaniel Hawthorne book, and fantastic movie with Emma uh, Stone, <laughs> Easy A. Easy A, that's probably my red, my Scarlet oh, Letter that's knowledge. That's such a great movie. That's actually a book we didn't read in high school. Oh, really? Yeah, we did not read that one. I mean, it's very rapey and depressing, but it's one of those that uh, we probably read it because it was like a subtle warning message in my private Christian high school. (laughs) Don't be Hester Prynne, you sluts. We passed through a considerable extent of private road and finally drove through a lawn shaded with trees and closely shaven and reached the door of Poulton Hall. Part of the mansion is three or four hundred years old. There is a curious old stately staircase with a twisted balustrade, much like that of the old province house in Boston. The drawing room looks like a very handsome modern room, being beautifully painted, gilded, and paper hung, with a white marble fireplace and rich furniture, so that the impression is that of newness, not of age." By the time Richard was born, however, the Green family was, as one relative told me, very English, a big house, and no money. The curtains were thin, the carpets were threadbare, and a cold draft often swirled through the corridors. Green, who had a pale, pudgy face, was blind in one eye from a childhood accident and wore spectacles with tinted lenses. One friend told me that, even as an adult, Green resembled the god of Pan, with cherubic-like features, a mouth which curved in a smile, which was sympathetic, ironic, and always seeming to suggest that there was just one little thing that he was not telling you. (laughs) Intensely shy, with a ferociously logical mind and a precise memory, he would spend hours roaming through his father's enormous library, reading dusty first editions of children's books. That's cool. That is cool. And by the time he was 11, he had fallen under the spell of Sherlock Holmes. His childhood and his personality sounds like a children's book in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Like a little pudgy, weird hey, kid in the what? English countryside. Maybe that's why he had stuffed animals. Oh. He was like, just a kid at heart. so, yeah. And 
uh, that makes me think of like or they could have been like stuffed animals of his dad's like books like yeah oh okay <laughs> you're a bitch genevieve <laughs> <laughs> okay the only reason to why that it jumped to my mind as being weird is because i still am at every given opportunity wanting to rant and rave about how much i hate lucy letby the killer nurse that killed those oh. NICU babies mm-hmm. and that was one of her things was she had a ton of stuffed animals like curated on her bed and i was like so anything that she had decor wise in her home i'm gonna find a reason to be like hard pass coasters fuck no yeah live laugh love sign Mm, not today (laughs) but green you're allowed to have your animals oh holmes was not the first great literary detective that honor belongs to Edgar Allan Poe's Inspector Auguste Dupin. What in the he- Edgar? That is why Augusta Dupin did not stand the test of time because that is a That's weird not a ass name. name. That really <laughs> sticks. That doesn't roll off the tongue. Dupin. <laughs> but Conan Doyle's hero was the most vivid exemplar of the fledging genre, which Poe dubbed Tales of ratiocination ratiocination yeah thank you genevieve <laughs> i have never heard that word uh, ratiocination that's just a lot of vowels together for me i feel like that's a po way of saying rationalization mm-hmm. maybe just say it simply yeah say it for us common folk yes holmes is a cold calculating machine a man who is as one critic put it a tracker a hunter down a combination of bloodhound pointer and bulldog the gaunt holmes has no wife or children as he explains i am a brain watson the rest of me is a mere appendix (laughs) oh my god hey at least he has a brain because for most men that's what they lack their entirety is their one mere appendix that they also think with so rigidly scientific he offers no spiritual bromide bromides 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 i think it's bromides bromides there's a lot of words in here that i am stretching way back into my english major days to recall thank you (laughs) but bromides i know to his bereaved clients conan doyle reveals virtually nothing about his character's interior life he is also defined solely by his method in short he is the perfect detective the superhero of victorian era out of which he blasted with his deer stalker hat and Inverness cape. His his look is very like Yes, and that pipe yes. that he had. Do you remember the was it the great mouse detective that I'm thinking of where there was a mouse that dressed like Holmes and had a pipe? That's at least that's what I'm seeing when yeah. you say that. And there was somebody in it named Basil. That's yeah, what it I had remember. To be that one, yeah, not and rescuers down under, and the very offensive stereotype of the evil bat with a peg leg. Oh, I do remember that. <laughs> that thing gave me nightmares when I was a kid because oh, the bat like snatches the little girl mouse, like stuffs her in a bag and runs away with her, and that's the the mystery is the oh my god the Holmes mouse the detective is having to get her back and i think it's 
the daughter of a local like businessman or something interesting that was a dark movie and i'm probably There's a not lot of dark movies yes. from my childhood that's one that i that whole plot is yeah. in my head but i know i've seen the movie. like snippets are in my mind and then there's a rat villain in it that's like the the kingpin rat that is terrifying oh my gosh you're unlocking Mm -hmm. memories in my brain yeah and then that weird bat peg leg thing is his little henchman yeah richard read the story straight through then read them again His rigorous mind had found its match in Holmes and his science of deduction, which could wrest an astonishing solution from a single, seemingly unremarkable clue. All life is a great chain, the nature of which is known wherever we are shown a single link of it, Holmes explains in his first story, A Study in Scarlet, which establishes a narrative formula that subsequent tales nearly always follow. A new client arrives at Holmes Baker Street Consulting Room. The detective stuns the visitor by deducing some element of his life by the mere observation of his demeanor or dress. In A Case of Identity, he divines that his client is a short-sighted typist by no more than the worn plush upon her sleeves and the dent of a pence what in the hell? The dent of a pince-nez at either side of her nose. Pause, because I'm going to Google what in the ever-loving fuck a pince-nez is. Pince-nez. Okay, let's see. Oh! Like- pince-nez is a style of glasses popular oh. in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that are supported without earpieces by pinching the bridge of the nose. Okay. After the client presents the inexplicable facts of the case, the game is afoot, as Holmes likes to say. A mass includes that invari- invariably boggle Watson, the story's more earthbound narrator, Holmes, ultimately arrives at a dazzling conclusion, one that, to him and him only, seems elementary. Ah, and that's where you've heard the Mm. elementary, my dear Watson. In The Red-Headed League, Holmes reveals to Watson how he surmised that an assistant pawnbroker was trying to rob a bank by tunneling underneath it. I thought of the assistant's fondness for photography and his trick of vanishing into the cellar, Holmes says, explaining that he then went to see the assistant. I hardly looked at his face. His knees were what I wished to see. You must yourself have remarked how worn, wrinkled, and stained they were. They spoke of those hours of burrowing. The only remaining point was what they were burrowing for. I walked round the corner, saw the city and suburban bank abutted on our friend's premises, and felt that I had solved my problem. Following the advice that Holmes often gave to Watson, Green practiced how to see what others merely observed. He memorized Holmes' rules as if they were... Catechism. Catechism. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm learning all these words. I hope you guys are too. (laughs) 
It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Never trust to general impressions, my boy, but concentrate yourself upon details. There is nothing more deceptive than an obvious fact. Mm -hmm. Not long after Green turned 13, he carried an assortment of artifacts from local junk sales into the dimly lit attic of Poulton Hall. Part of the attic was known as the Martyr's Chamber and was believed to be haunted, having once been tenanted by a lady who was imprisoned there and prosecuted to death for her religion, according to Hawthorne. Nevertheless, up in the attic, Green assembled his objects to create a strange tabula. Hmm. There was a rack of pipes and a per Persian slipper stuffed with tobacco. What? There was a stack of unpaid bills, which he stabbed into a mantle with a knife <laughs> so that they were pinned in place. There was a box of pills labeled poison. Oh, God. Empty ammunition. <laughs> Empty ammunition cartridges and trompe some British, some trompe trompe It's written all fancy. Yeah. Bullet marks painted on the walls. I didn't think the attic would stand up to real bullets, he later remarked. <laughs> <laughs> a preserved snake, a brass microscope, and an invitation to the gas fitter's ball. Finally, outside the door of the room, Green hung a sign, Baker Street. Okay, this entire room sounds like a display at the Oddities and Curiosities Ooh, Expo, and does. I'm also there for it. I especially love the detail of the yeah, stack of unpaid bills stabbed into the mantle with a knife. Just holding them in place. Just pen. Put a pen in it. Paperweight was not going to do it. No. Had to be a knife. A preserved snake, too. Yeah. That's kind of cool. Relying on the stray details sprinkled throughout Conan Doyle's stories, Green had pieced together a replica of Holmes and Watson's apartment, one so precise that it occasionally drew Holmes aficionados from other parts of England. One local reporter described the uncanny sensation of climbing the 17 stairs the same number specified in the stories, as a tape recording played in the background with the sounds of Victorian London, the rumble of cab wheels, the clopping of horse hooves on cobblestones. By then, Green had become the youngest person ever inducted into the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, where members sometimes dressed in period costumes, in high-waisted trousers and top hats. Though Holmes had first appeared in print nearly a century earlier, he had spawned a literary cult unlike that of any other fictional character, I'll say. God. Almost from his inception, readers latched onto him with a zeal that bordered on the mystical, as one Conan Doyle biographer had noted. When Holmes made his debut in the 1887 Beaton's Christmas Annual, a magazine of somewhat lurid fiction, he was considered not just a character, but a paragon of the Victorian faith in all things scientific. He entered public consciousness around the same time as the development of the modern police force, at a moment when medicine was finally threatening to eradicate common diseases and industrialization offered to curtail mass power. 
He was proof that, indeed, the forces of reason could triumph over the forces of madness. By the time Green was born, however, the worship of scientific thinking had been shattered by other fates. Faiths. By Nazism, Communism, and Fascism. I don't know why I said that weird. <laughs> <sighs> Which had often harnessed the power of technology to demonic ends. Yet, paradoxically, the more illogical the world seemed, the more intense the cult surrounding homes became. Hmm. The symbol of a new creed had become a figure of nostalgia. A person in a fairy tale, as Green once put it, the character's popularity even surpassed the level of fame he had attained in Conan Doyle's day, as the stories were reenacted in some 260 movies, 25 television shows, a musical, a ballet, a burlesque. Oh my god. (laughs) I need to see the burlesque. Oh my god. And 600 radio plays. Wow. Holmes inspired the creation of journals, memorabilia shops, walking tours, postage stamps, hotels, themed ocean cruises. Goodness gracious. Oh my god. The themed ocean cruise sounds kind of fun. The burlesque. Oh my god. I need to see that. And in the burlesque, Holmes and Watson had to be gay. I mean... I mean, that's the only thing that would Yeah, sense. that's, that would be, yeah. Man. <laughs> I'm just fixated on that because that sounds fantastic. Edgar W. Smith, a former vice president of General Motors and the first editor of the Baker Street Journal, which publishes scholarship on Conan Doyle stories, wrote in a 1946 essay, What is it that we love in Sherlock Holmes? We see him as the fine expression of our urge to trample evil and to set aright the wrongs with which the world is plagued. He is Galahad and Socrates, bringing high adventure to our dull existences and calm, judicial logic to our biased minds. He is the success of all our failures, the bold escape from our imprisonment. Caitlin, do you know of that podcast that's called Sounds Like a Cult? No. If you haven't, you should check it out uh, because it's really interesting. But they basically just pick random, like, pop culture things Mm -hmm. people are super intense about. And they say the they break down why it is the cult of blah, blah, blah. Because Mm. every cult, there's always these, like, key pinpoint elements Mm -hmm, to it. make it a cult. Yeah, and that really apply to so many things that we don't think do like they recently did one that was like the cult of military wives the cult of taylor swift i was about to say yeah taylor swift yep um but this would also be really interesting like the cult of sherlock holmes because there's shirkalians sherlockians (laughs) (laughs) oh yeah but the more that they talk about the level of obsession and like adoration that people had for him a hundred percent crazy yeah what had made this literary escape unlike any other though is that so many people conceive of holmes as a real person 
T.S. Eliot once observed, perhaps the greatest of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries is this, that when we talk of him, we invariably fall into the fancy of his existence. Green himself wrote, Sherlock Holmes is a real character who lives beyond lifespan and who is constantly rejuvenated. At the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, Green was introduced to the Great Game, where Sherlockians had played for decades. It was built around the conceit that the story's true author was not Conan Doyle, but Watson, who had faithfully recounted Holmes' exploits. Oh, interesting. Once at a gathering of the elite Baker Street Irregulars, which Green also joined, he was... He was all up in that. He was in all the extracurriculars. (laughs) A guest referred to Conan Doyle as the creator of Holmes, prompting one outraged member to exclaim... Holmes is a man. Holmes is a great man. Okay, sir. Sir, this is a Wendy's. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, that was not a Wendy's. That was a gathering of the elite Baker Street Irregulars. So how dare somebody suggest that he was not a real man? If Green had to invoke Conan Doyle's name, he was told he should refer to him merely as Watson's literary agent. Wow. The challenge of the game was that Conan Doyle had often written the four Holmes novels and 56 short stories. The sacred writings, as Sherlockians called them. Okay, but cult. Cult. Uh, it, the end. The sacred writings that did it. The Sherlockians <laughs> called them. Uh-huh. In haste, and they were plagued with inconsistencies, and that made them difficult to pass off as nonfiction. How, for instance, is it possible that in one story Watson is describing... As having been wounded in Afghanistan in the shoulder by a Giselle bullet. Can we just say bullet? Like, what the... Yeah, I don't even know what that is. Though, in another story, he complains that the wound was in his leg. Hmm. The goal was thus to resolve these paradoxes. Using the same airtight logic that Holmes exhibits, similar textual inquiries had already given birth to the related field, known as Sherlockania. (laughs) (laughs) We shouldn't be laughing. Somebody is going to come at us <laughs> for being in I'm this sorry. cult. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Mock scholarship in which fans try to deduce everything from how many wives Watson has, one to five, <laughs> to which university Holmes attended. Surely Cambridge or Oxford. Oh, my God. They're the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> As Green once conceded, quoting the founder of Baker Street Irregulars, never had so much been written by so many for so few. Oh my god. After Green graduated from Oxford in 1975, he turned his attention to more serious scholarship. Of all the puzzles surrounding the sacred writings, the greatest one, Green realized, centered on the man whom the stories had long since eclipsed, Conan Doyle himself. Green set out to compile the first comprehensive bibliography, hunting down every piece of material that Conan Doyle wrote, pamphlets, plays, poems, obituary, songs, unpublished manuscripts, letters to the editor. Carrying a plastic bag in place of a briefcase, Green unearthed documents that had long been hidden behind the veil of history. In the midst of this research, Green discovered that John Gibson was working on a similar project, and they agreed to collaborate. 
the resulting tome, published in 1983 by Oxford University Press, with a foreword by Graham Greene, is 712 pages long and contains notations on nearly every scrap of writing that Conan Doyle ever produced, down to the kind of paper in which a manuscript was bound. Cloth or light blue diaper grain. What in the actual... What? I didn't think that a level of crazy could surpass, like, Taylor Swift obsession. This is on par, if not worse. Like, I mean, you know, if anything, it's no different than people writing fan fiction. Yeah. Or, like, like it's Twi just hard stuff. Yeah. I mean, it really... It really is. But it's all... What's I mean, not int- to say that fan fiction can't be a little too yeah. much. But it's interesting that it's all, like men yeah that are so into something that is like it was also happening around a time frame when it was like i mean obviously it was during victorian england like the 18 late 1800s mm-hmm. to early 1900s but the craze and the obsession and like all of this the societies and the clubs like that was after during the 50s and beyond and it almost makes you wonder if that was kind of like a form of escapism from just the horrific shit that was going on with the world wars something that they have control over something that they yeah like yeah and there's always like every single story is very controlled a controlled formula you know that there's going to be a resolution in the mm-hmm. end. The hero is going to win. Order and reason are going to prevail. And right. during the time of the both of the world wars, I mean, everything was just horrific brutality and violence and things happening for no rhyme or reason to people that didn't deserve it. And so that would be a great way of like creating that world for yourself Mm. to escape the trauma of your actual reality yeah which people do with everything else so so there are far worse things to get obsessed with (laughs) we're talking ourselves down from the ledge (laughs) they're not that crazy yeah like and it's fine to be obsessed with things as long as you're not hurting anybody yeah. else. And so, like, we can poke fun at that. But when I was a teen, if there had been a society I could have joined that was, like, a Lord of the Rings club or, like, an Indiana Jones club, Harry Potter club, like, I'd have been Twilight club. Team like, Edward I'd have been club. <laughs> I would have been on that and broken down every little sentence of everything. Oh When the bibliography was done, Gibson continued in his job as a government property assessor. Green, however, had inherited a sizable sum of money from his family, who had sold part of their estate, and he used the bibliography as a launching pad for a biography of Conan Doyle. Writing a biography is akin to the process of detection, and Green started to retrace every step of Conan Doyle's life as if it were an elaborate crime scene. During the 1980s, Green followed Conan Doyle's movement from the moment he was born, 
on May 22, 1859, in a squalid part of Edinburgh. Green visited the neighborhood where Conan Doyle was raised by a devout Christian mother and a dreamy father. He drew one of the first illustrations of Sherlock Holmes. Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's cool. A sketch of the detective discovering a corpse which accompanied a paperback edition of A Study in Scarlet. Green also amassed an intricate paper record that showed his subject's intellectual evolution. He discovered, for instance, that after Conan Doyle studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh, he fell under the influence of rationalist thinkers like Oliver Wendell Holmes. Ooh, he must have been, like, jizzing his pants over that dude having that last name. <laughs> he had to be. You know. Yes. He had to be like, oh. Yes, the Holmes. Real. I know a relative. A real life Holmes. Who's your dad? Oliver Wendell Holmes is a cool name, Oliver too. Oliver Wendell. That's cute. <laughs> a cute British name. It is. Oliver. Who undoubtedly inspired the surname of Conan Doyle's detective. He renounced... Oh, okay. I guess that makes oh, sense. I guess he I knew see. him before. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, shit. Ah. I like the thought of him yes. getting excited. <laughs> that would be cute. He renounced Catholicism, vowing, Never will I accept anything which cannot be proved to me. Hmm. In the early 80s, Green published the first of a series of introductions to Penguin Classics editions of Conan Doyle's previously uncollected works, many of which he had helped to uncover. The essays, written in a clinical style, began garnering him attention outside the insular subculture of Sherlockians. One essay, running more than a hundred pages, was a small biography of Conan Doyle unto itself. In another, Green cast further light on the short story, The Case of the Man Who Was Wanted, which had been found in a chest more than a decade after Conan Doyle's death and was claimed by his widow and sons to be the last unpublished home story. Some experts had wondered if the story was a fake, and even if Conan Doyle's two sons, in search of money to sustain their lavish lifestyles, had forged it. Yet, Green conclusively showed that the story was neither by Conan Doyle nor a forgery. Instead, it was written by an architect named Arthur Whitaker, who had sent it to Conan Doyle in hopes of collaborating. Scholars described Green's essays variously as dazzling, unparalleled, and the ultimate compliment, Holmesian. Ah, <laughs> oh, so Holmesian. Holmesian. Still, Green was determined to dig deeper for his now highly anticipated biography. As the mystery writer Ian Pears had observed, Conan Doyle's hero acts in nearly the same fashion as a Freudian analyst piecing together his client's hidden narratives, which he alone can perceive. In a 1987 review of Conan Doyle's autobiography, Memories and Adventures, which was published in 1924, Green noted, It is as if Conan Doyle, whose character suggested kindliness and trust, had a fear of intimacy. When he described his life, he omits the inner man. Interesting. Hmm. Huh. To reveal this inner man, Green examined facts that Conan Doyle rarely, if ever, spoke of himself. Most notably, that his father, an epileptic and incorrigible alcoholic, 
was eventually confined to an insane asylum. I would God. guess that is not a good combo to have, epilepsy and alcoholism. Dang. Ooh. Gosh. Yet the more Green tried to plumb his subject, the more he became aware of the holes in his knowledge of Conan Doyle. He didn't want to just sketch Conan Doyle's story with a series of anecdotes. He wanted to know everything about him. In the draft of an early mystery story, The Surgeon of Gaster Fall, Conan Doyle writes of a son who has locked his raving father inside a cage, but this incident was excised from the published version. Had Conan Doyle been the one to commit his father to the asylum? Was Holmes' mania for the logic a reaction to his father's genuine mania? And what did Conan Doyle mean when he wrote in his deeply personal poem, The Inner Room, that he has thoughts he dare not say? Green wanted to create an immaculate biography, one in which each fact led inexorably to the next. He wanted to be both Watson and Holmes to Conan Doyle, to be his narrator and his detective. Yet he knew the words of Holmes, Data, 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 I can't make bricks without clay. And the only way to succeed, he realized, was to track down the lost archive. Murder, Owen Dudley Edwards, a highly regarded Conan Doyle scholar, said, I fear that is what the preponderance of the evidence points to. I had called him in Scotland after Gibson informed me that Edwards was pursuing an informal investigation into Green's death. Edwards had worked with Green to stop the auction, which took place in spite of the uproar, almost two months after Green's body was found. Edwards said to his friend, I think he knew too much about the archive. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. And that's where we're going to end today's story. Yeah. (laughs) Because this is a long one. (laughs) Yeah, that was not the end. As we started reading it, we were like, oh, holy shit, this thing's like 55 pages long. So we made it halfway through for you guys today. And I think, like you were saying, it's written like a Sherlock Holmes. It really is. It's very intriguing. And I hope you guys are all as intrigued as we are. Yes. Um, I did not know what to expect when I started it. But that's the thing I like about these blind reads is that the tone of it is so different from the other ones that we've read but it's just excellent writing and excellent storytelling descriptions everything it really it really hooks you in yes it does so we will absolutely link the article in the show notes but please don't go read it unless you want to ruin the ending for yourself let us read it for you yes i'm also very fascinated about this intense world of know Holmesians or whatever Sherlockyism <laughs> Sherlockyism Holmeism <laughs> Home. there's a lot of words that we learned today too guys yes. you're welcome and I also appreciate how in the beginning we went from being like who is this green person and why do right. we care we got his whole life story and I have a I feel like I have such a clear picture of who he was, mm-hmm. his childhood, like his, yes, his obsession, but also I get it. His like, passion. Yes, his passion and that it was very, I find it fascinating when people become so 
devoted to something that isn't like, you know, we put people on a pedestal who become astronauts or like Mm. chemists or scientists or, you know, who do things that create something that benefits a lot of people. But this is somebody that was just so passionate about something because they just loved it that much and did give something to the world like the biographies and the gave entertainment yeah absolutely and like we said there are far worse things you can obsess over so yeah but yeah i'm really interested to see how it goes and how it gets solved because like i want to know the american accent like recording yes the american accent thing the bizarreness of how he was found the how the was and the his what? door locked? Yeah. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. All these things huh. that you guys have to wait and find out with us. Yeah. And that was he maybe... Was close? he insane? Yeah. Was he too close to something yeah. and got... I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. But we will know next episode. We will know. And we hope you guys come back and keep on listening. So until next time. Bye. Bye.